Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 68. I'm Amelia, here with my co-hosts Donna and Ken. In this episode, we're going to take a moment to catch up with what's happened on Archonnect in the past week and share some endorsements. Just like the rest of the country after Sunday's horrific mass shooting at an Orlando gay club, we've been trying to process what happened. We wanted to have a constructive conversation on why queer spaces like gay bars are so important and invite members from queer and Latino urbanism circles to share their experiences as a sign of solidarity and resilience. We also did not want to rush things, so we're going to save that conversation for next week's podcast. Until then, if you have a memory or experience of how important gay bars are to queer urbanism and urbanism in general, please share them with us. We'll post a thread to the forum, and you can always be in touch on Twitter, we are at Arc Sessions, or through email at connect at arcconnect.com. So that will be for next week. But for this week, turning to what's been happening on Arcconnect, Ken, would you like to start off by just sharing whatever you've noticed on Arcconnect in the past week and wanted to share with our audience? I wanted to share a Nicholas a small piece that uh, Nicholas just uh, let loose about a week ago uh, about one student solution to permanent limbo of refugee camps. I thought that was um, particularly poignant. I think at given this moment when we have a particular candidate running for president, <laughs> ah, fuck it. Um, <laughs> You know, I'll say, I'll say his name, and um, maybe if I say, maybe if a I say it three one. times, a fucker will disappear. So Donald, no, <laughs> so Do please you know, let it happen. Donald Trump's <laughs> insistence on uh, banishing Muslims from the face of the planet, 1.8 billion or 2 billion people from the face of the earth, if the few million that exist in the United States, it seems like there is not going to be any concerted effort by our government to to come up with a, a, a feasible strategy to resettle these people who are being destroyed in Syria. So I think this particular solution, I think, was submitted for the open call for uh, May. It was a particularly interesting one. Um, it, it talks a little bit more about permanent, a little bit more. I think there's a little more, more permanence attached to this um, resettling the refugees mm. in Turkey. So I think it's uh, particularly important to think about these kinds of architectural solutions to problems when we have leaders who don't seem to be interested in solving problems. So this was a very good piece. I'm so glad that we were able to feature this particular project from the submissions that we got for the open call for May. The open call was just about projects that are trying to engage in these social issues, kind of piggybacking on Aravena's call for the 2016 Venice Biennale. And this work is a piece of student work. It was a thesis project by a student at the OHU School of Architecture in Denmark. And what I just think this project really makes very clear that a lot of discussions around refugee architecture either skirt around or simply just don't take as a necessary premise is that we think of these refugee communities as kind of ad hoc and temporary and limbo and all these words around them not being able to invest in the full sense of permanence in either a space or resources or anything. And yet in the reality, often people are living in these places for over a decade in incredibly uncertain situations. And so to just kind of understand what basic psychological toll that will take on any person, let alone someone already in a scenario of extreme unrest, I think was a really significant premise for this project, especially as a piece of student work to kind of take and bring to the actual design. So Ken, I, yeah, I think that I'm really glad you chose to highlight that piece. What I appreciate from this piece is that it's thoughtful and it's and it appreciates the uh, idea, like you just pointed out, that these are long-term settlements and the idea that these, you know, camp always sounds temporary. I mean, camp is temporary. 
the very nature of a camp is it's mm. just a temporary settlement. So it, it, at least it looks at it from a perspective of shifting from a, a transitory to a, a settlement into a city. So that's one of the things I took away from the particular student statement is that it, it's thoughtful in its progression to something that's a, uh, a hell of a lot more stable and uh, fixed in some sense than this kind of uncertainty that you get with a camp. You know, that that's part of what's terrifying about how long we have been hearing on the news about these camps, that people really are, they're living there for, for years and years. Children are growing up in these places. And it's it's terrifying to me that we, we can't seem to come up with a solution or, or some kind of better way to approach it. It somewhat relates to the, the article I wanted to mention for this week, which is on the very sad news. And it was about a week ago that the floating school of the Makoko slum in Lagos, I believe, is is it's pronounced Makoko, Makoko, which was designed by Kunle Adeyemi, who last week we were carrying on about how wonderful his summer house at the Serpentine Pavilion installation is. He also did this very, very cool floating school for children in a, a settlement that has no services for these children. And um, sadly, during a very heavy rainstorm, it it collapsed a week ago. No one was hurt, from what I've heard from the the, the news I've read. But the notion that we have, yeah, we have children growing up in these these very informal places, and they are not getting access to any kind of uh, of services. The idea of bringing those services into these settlements, I think, is obviously a good one. I just wish we could take it on a little more strongly and robustly. This story had a kind of fascinating and somewhat ironic timing in the fact that not only did Kunle Adeyemi's summer house become unveiled last week, but at the same time, there was a either a replica or another version of the float, Makoko floating school installed at the Venice Biennale. And that had been already lauded and it, of course, became much more of a public project at that point and brought a lot of attention to the situation in Makoko and also happened to win the Silver Lion uh, for the floating school at the Venice Biennale. And while, of course, there is, (laughs) I feel, a fair amount to be said about how that irony is so difficult to deal with when you have the thing winning an award at the exact same time that it's kind of coming tragically falling down in the scenario that is actually being used in, in a way does serve to just highlight the significance of projects like these that much more and show that despite the fact that the context of building it in a place like Mokoko was never fully government approved and there's all of these horrible hurdles and difficulties to just getting it repaired now that, of course, the, which the community is also engaging in to try to get their school back up and running, that we hope perhaps that having this prominent presence at the Biennale will also kind of aid those efforts. Reminds me, too, of the urban writer, the urbanist um, Aaron Wren right, writing. He writes about all kinds of urbanism, but one of his favorite sayings when thinking about urban projects is is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And, you know, this kind of situation where the, the officials in the city were all saying, oh, this thing was never legal anyway, like it, it shouldn't be there at all. You know, sometimes a little bit of good is better than something that's completely perfect. And yes, if this can help to illustrate why we need to invest more and try to make the project better, then that can only lead to a better solution, we, w- we would hope. Mm-hmm. We also have um, some other coverage coming out of the Biennale this week. When we were thinking about how to cover the Biennale, because of course it's just such a huge event, not just in its expanse, but of course in its influence and its pure volume of projects, we actually ended up sending three writers to cover the Biennale this year. And they all kind of have focused on different national pavilions and different sections of the events and exhibitions happening there. And we're going to be publishing the last one at the end of this week, so the day after this podcast airs on Friday the 17th, I believe, of June. But um, our second feature 
uh, accounting from the Biennale was published today, the day of this recording, Wednesday the 15th, by Andrea Deitz, who we had on the podcast, uh, I believe that was just last week, um, to talk about her experience in Venice. Um, So I'd also love to point people to her feature, which just came out today, which I think does a really good job of characterizing and explaining the inherent difficulty to Aravena's Biennale of having this social focus while at the same time basically not creating contradiction and uh, interdisciplinary toe-stepping, you might say, of people who are desperately, <laughs> so much, so desperately trying to be inclusive and open up the discipline and have it be accessible for all types of social issues while at the same time truly not overstep their own boundaries but and and also not, not try to say they can do more than they can actually do and let in who they need to have let in to do what they need to do. So I would love for people to kind of take that coverage in combination with what we've seen already posted on the site from Laura Amaya, as well as what we'll be having published on the site later this week to kind of get a more, a little bit messier version of what's happening at the Biennale, because of course, one review will never be able to do the whole thing justice. And of course, as the Biennale continues throughout its extended to November, we're going to see things change. And so I kind of look forward to using these features as a way to, to measure progress and difference of opinion throughout the Biennale coverage. I think it's it's funny to me, this this reminds me that uh, right the day that the press preview for the uh, Biennale happened, the Vernissage, Fred Sharman posted on Facebook and Fred was on the the podcast uh, the week of um, the AIA convention where we met him. He first posted a comment on Facebook about coverage of the Biennale and when it would be coming and how is it possible to get both some sort of on the ground reporting as well as some longer term consideration and thinking about these events and how they affect us? And I will just point out that he, after the AIA convention, wrote, wrote a very nice wrap up of the Rem Kulhas conversation, talking about how we're starting to see the things that should that appear to be normal, that actually are very odd. And we should be asking ourselves, why is this being accepted as normal? It's a good little article. We can we can link to it on the in the show notes. Definitely. But yeah, having this this follow up conversation and continuing coverage of from lots of different voices of the Biennale, I think the show is up for several months. So it's nice to be able to keep hearing more about it as it settles in and as certain bits start to, to fall into focus. And I think, doesn't Q have, um, who is it that is post or doing a Twitter feed? Birds of Paradise? V- Birds of Venice. Birds, ah, Birds yes. of Venice. Birds, Birds of, of Venice. Oh my God, hilarious. <laughs> I have no idea who it is. I know, we've, we've reached out to them for for any information multiple times. And we're like, we're very interested in knowing who this is and we have yet to hear. So any insight to that effect, we'd love for you to be in touch with us. But yeah, it's a hilarious account, not just skewing the Biennale, but all of these, both art and architectural yeah. meetings of the minds and various yeah. significant classes. What was funny was there was a photo, wasn't there a photo just recently of uh, this all male stage with the, and it was just like, doesn't yes. anyone stand back and like, just look at what's up there and say, yeah, this doesn't fucking work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a huge misstep that Aravena's panel was just all guys. I don't understand how anybody can have this kind of blind spot anymore. It's fr- my, my fiance was showing me this piece that she's been, uh, she's, she's in public health arena and she's looking at this conference and, or no, it was a competition of some kind. And all of the judges on this competition panel are all white males in a profession that is yep. more, <laughs> has more women than men in it. All of the people that are yeah. judging this competition are white males. And it's just like, how does somebody not look at that, that, that lineup and go, yeah, this doesn't work. I think that that particular photo was circulated as just as much among satirical <laughs> uses. Like I saw it of within 
the Birds of Venice while also seeing it, you know, in, in our coverage, we were using it was like, yeah, this is what this looked like. And it's clearly a press photo. You know, it's not framed to make a like literally the frame of the photograph isn't composed to make a specific comment on the part of a critical person. It's like really done just by like from the press image. You can download it from the Biennale's press site. And I think it so clearly articulates the issue. Um, Ken, that you just said. And, and so hopefully just by calling attention to it and just, you know, commenting that can continue kind of raising these issues that we think shouldn't have to be raised anymore because they're so self-evident, but clearly they're just not. Well, and it's not enough that they, they they go around and apologizing for it. They they need to come up and say, you know, fuck it. We fucked up. Just, you know, and say we, we need to do better. Mm, yeah. And just call themselves. And it just don't see there's this kind of, they're not self-aware enough to even look around at the stage and even, I've been to events I, funny, there was a, there was a kind of a pachachka here in Minneapolis and there was this white guy up on the stage talking about being in South Minneapolis and was commenting on the crowd and how it was probably lacking in diversity. And I almost stood up and yelled at him, like, take a look at yourselves, the entire presentation, every single person <laughs> on this panel that's presenting this stupid thing is all male. And I'm like, mostly white, or if not all male, definitely all white people. And I'm like, just not even to be self-aware to even criticize, to have to criticize yourselves for being this panel is just, just mind-numbingly um, myopic. <laughs> well, so we do hope then that in the next many months that the Biennale will go on through November, that there will be other opportunities to discuss this. And um, we also posted a piece of a few accounts of kind of un informal or, or in some ways dissenting opinions and actions that were happening throughout the Biennale. And so there are many ways where other recognized architectural institutions are, whether the architecture lobby, for example, are trying to bring attention to some of these issues that just seem so blatantly obvious, but aren't being addressed in a constructive way at the Biennale. So hopefully, given time, more things will come up. One of the other things that, that actually came to mind, Ken, from based on what you were just saying, was our interview this past week with Craig Dykers and Elaine Molinar from Snowheda. And this is this was our last one-to-one -one episode. And originally, when we were planning, scheduling the interview, I w didn't realize that Craig and Elaine would both be on the podcast. I had just been in touch with Elaine. The conversation was just going to be with her. And then kind of somewhat at the last minute, it was a happy opportunity that both could join. And for those who aren't aware, they are a couple. They've been together pretty much for as long as Noheda has been a firm since around 1989. And that hearing them both speak about the firm very much together, they have different roles and they are not in any way kind of jostling for <laughs> like throughout the, the course of the conversation. Neither of them were fighting the other to kind of take the mic more, but they really just did have a, to, to me, and I think comes off in the interview, a very clear understanding of how they both could contribute to the firm and how they both were the firm in a way. And just hearing like a very sane conversation about some of that kind of equal representation of their two genders being members of the firm through the course of this last 30 years almost was very refreshing. And I would encourage anyone who's A, interested in Snowheda's work to check it out, but also just anyone who is aware of those potentially very fraught interpersonal issues that comes along with running a firm and that they seem to have figured out a way to make it work very well. You know, I I, um, I particularly like this interview a lot. I thought they were... Um... <laughs> really good together. And I thought it went really well. I think the thing I couldn't, I still can't shake. And I take away from is the, the taxidermy. Uh, Elaine talking oh, yeah. about uh, oh, my taxidermy was, <laughs> was particularly interesting to me and, and really like, yeah, that would be great. And then you brought up uh, a great point, which would be a great studio project around taxidermy. So, and even the book, 
the books that they threw out there. And I, you know, I really like the question because I think so often we just get so caught up in the architecture and shop talk. It's nice to hear what they're like as human beings. So Absolutely, especially from a firm like that and one that has really been growing What in what seems like a way that, and they bring this up in the interview, is like they do not want to be growing in the way that ends them up, ends them up at a point where they have hundreds of firms scattered around the world and they don't have any idea what's happening at any of them, but they all run these somewhat autonomous organizations and they're just churning out whatever they need to churn out. And, and I think that that kind of constant attention to cultivating that creative aspect, whether it's Elaine doing taxidermy or um, Craig mentions buying books on Renaissance architecture because he's just doing a lot of drawings in that vein recently and kind of constantly cultivating these like other aspects of their professional capacity, I think was like an incredibly yeah refreshing and like human thing to hear about and something that, yeah, definitely comes up in the firm. They also have lunch every day, right? Yes. They, didn't they say they have lunch every day oh, with yeah. their firm? I know. What a novel. <laughs> sits down and, what a novel idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah. It's lovely. And that actually came up. There's a great New Yorker profile of Snowheada from a couple of years ago that brings that up explicitly that in their Oslo office, they have the one of the partners walks them through the office and describes the head, the stomach and the like hands of the office. One, the head being like the office meeting area as a studio, the stomach being the, the meeting place, the place where they can all eat and just be together in that kind of passive socializing. And then the hands being like the workshops and stuff. I just loved that organization. And I totally agreed on it. Something like that, that I was totally expecting an answer like, well, we've organized our spontaneous corridors to have like maximized, <laughs> you know, collisions for entrepreneurial exactly. success. And I'm like, and I was kind of like what I was expecting some type of answer to be. And they were just like, no, we just like really think it's important that everyone eats together. I, I thought that was lovely. Yeah. Yeah, that was. All right. Well, do we have any other pieces to share from our Connect in the last week that we wanted to bring to our audience's attention? Yeah. Speaking of eating, I want to bring <laughs> up a, uh, a, um, a news item that Amelia, you actually posted, which is a link to a blog called LA Taco and a post by Ryan Mangia that's called Personal History, Documenting the Architecture of Pot Shops, in which he goes along, what, one street? It's Pico? Pico. Pico Boulevard and and photographs the facade of every pot shop along the street. And I just I'm really interested in, I guess, this what Venturi would call, you know, sort of ordinary urbanism. I, I love this kind of urbanism. And especially because this is a um, you know, it's a it's a, a, a legal business, but it's also one that's still somewhat on the fringes or somewhat mm -hmm. there's a bit of a reputation. And the way that they various the various vendors reach out to their target crowd, some of these places look very much like, you know, a head shop in the 80s would have looked when I was growing up in the suburbs of Phoenix. And some of them look like spots almost like very relaxing and um the kind of uh one common thread through them seems to be the color green that everyone <laughs> like associates the color green with uh with marijuana dispensaries so it's it's just a neat little piece of um of of uh yeah everyday urbanism in the in the california area so i liked that piece a lot i'm so glad you brought that piece up donna because i it also and and someone um brought this up in the comments i'll credit them as soon as I can find exactly who it was. But Pico Boulevard has other significances in LA urbanism for many reasons. But one of them in particular is that the Pulitzer Prize winning food critic, Jonathan Gold, kind of one of the major things that he did and kind of helped make a name for himself was that he would eat at every restaurant along, P along Pico Boulevard as a means of kind of not just justifying the fact that there are, is an insane variety and diversity of restaurants along that boulevard, but also attesting to that being kind of the core mode of LA urbanism as that we have these big tens of miles long boulevard throughout entire stretches of the city and they get dispersed these kind of stretched throughout different cities to the point where you kind of experience 
the transition from east to west in this gradual way that you get to then point to specific instances of through either the restaurants or, in this case, the kind of facades of these pot shops, which also have a fantastic uh, selection of puns and such to their dispenser. Oh, absolutely. At their disposal. And Ken is reminding me that Chigurh brought up the reference to Jonathan Gold's eating his way through Pico Boulevard. And so I just love this as being from L.A. And I think many L.A. people also kind of just feel warm and fuzzy inside of seeing things like this (laughs) and and not not as a, uh, you know, somatic reference to the actual drug, but just by seeing it. (laughs) And like, this is adorable. And Donna, that you mentioned that the degrees of legality is also a huge issue for for the very specific city planning and like the urbanism that can happen in these spaces. L.A. is very expensive. L.A. is changing very rapidly. And when you have all of these kind of almost squatting businesses that just get in as quickly as possible, often under regulated or not regulated at all, just like make a quick buck and then leave, having that incredibly transient service industry in a city how is that going to affect, A, the pedestrian culture and B, this overall urbanism and overall economy of the area? And it can often serve to maybe make it worse if they can't establish like consistent and reliable businesses in those areas. So I love this piece. LA Taco is also, despite its name, a very <laughs> a very useful site for LA local stuff. So I'm so glad we brought that up. It also, I think for me, it leads a bit into what we'll be talking about more next week, which is queer spaces. And a writer named James Rojas wrote an article about the outrageousness of queer spaces. And it popped up in the 70s and 80s around gay nightclubs. And to me, these little, these um, pot shops are, because they are sort of on that edge of legality, they are potentially these kinds of outrageous expressions of a way of life that is becoming to, becoming to have greater acceptance. And so to me, the ones that sort of have a, a a punny name like Happy Times and, you know, a painting of a pot leaf on them versus then the ones that look very much like a like a spa or, a, you know, a Japanese retreat. <laughs> it's it's interesting to see how the outrageous quality of them is going to to change as it becomes more accepted. And yeah, hopefully next week we'll be able to talk a little more about these kinds of queer spaces and spaces that are for communities that maybe don't quite fit in in other places. Absolutely. That we'll we'll find a piece where James Rojas discusses that kind of overt commercialization or kind of uh, whitewashing of the so-called gayborhoods and such that comes along often after certain significant benefits society have been passed on and methods towards getting more egalitarian spaces, while at the same time, perhaps at the compromise of those kind of more vibrant aspects of it. Exactly. So I read a piece on uh, Bustle, I think it was uh, probably late Monday, early Tuesday morning, and it's kind of changed the nature of my Facebook space. And I think, you know, this month is Pride Month. I would endorse that people would take a step back and uh, check their aggression on Facebook. And, And what I mean by that is I think after this happened, I was aggressively posting all sorts of stuff and, and my own anger is, and what, what this bustle piece we really talked about was this space is not your space. It's not my space. And in the sense that, um, your, this is not about you. This is about, this is an attack on a, a very significant community. Um, one that's going and it's come a long way in acceptance in our society, but at the same time, Facebook has become a mouth, basically a mouthpiece for everyone's um, voices. And I started to rethink about, rethink how I was going to let my space be occupied, either by occupied by my voice or others. And I've decided that any of my uh, gay and lesbian friends that post anything, want anything to say, I'm giving 
my space to them. So whatever they share, I upshare and I consistently, I am not going to put any of my negative commentary around that. And uh, so I've been pretty consistent with um, trying to keep that going and trying to share that space and allow those voices that don't get heard a lot to be shared. And, and you know, this weekend, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of pride festivals across this country and, you know, summer, get out and, and visit them and be a part of that space and kind of experience it firsthand what it's like. So that's my other endorsement. Thanks, Ken. I think that's very on point. And, and especially given that we're trying to, we're going to take a, a little bit of a breather this week and revisit those issues with concerted effort and a little bit of breathing space next week on the podcast. So thanks everyone for listening. That is our show for this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, we are at Arc Sessions on Twitter, or you can email us through connect at arconnect.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Until next week. Thanks, everybody.